chapter 4, Jeremiah chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 5. Jeremiah 4, verse 5. This is God's Word. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this put on sackcloth. Lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on, hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horseman and archer, Every city takes to flight. They enter thickets. They climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken and no man dwells in them. 
And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that your dress is scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, and the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, Woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. Let's pray. Lord, we delight in your law. It is good. And yet sometimes it is very heavy. So would you take these words given to the prophet Jeremiah long ago and help us to see what you have to speak to us today? Would you give us ears to hear what your word says? Would you help us understand? Would you apply it to our lives? May this not simply be a history lesson, but may we see how your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, that it is able to pierce to our very heart. Would you do that, Lord? As only you can do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those who haven't been with us, we're working our way through the book of Jeremiah. And we've seen in chapter 2 an indictment given against the people, uh, speaking against them for the many sins that they had had done, their failure to repent. We see the call to repent in chapter 3. And now in chapters 4 to 6, we see this pronouncement of judgment that is going to come. It is a sure judgment, something that we read that the Lord is not going to turn back from. But as we think about this, we think the announcement of sure judgment, and at times it sounds a bit repetitive over and over, as we think about the call to repentance and you know the, sound, the, the, the assurance of judgment, how do those two things fit together? Uh, how does, it, it starts to become a little confusing. And so it's good for us to go back and remind ourselves of some things just to remember as we work our way through this book. And the first thing is that the announcements took place over the course of Jeremiah's ministry, which lasted over 40 years. So there were entire decades that went by where Jeremiah is announcing judgment's coming, judgment's coming, and the people are looking around going, life looks pretty good to me, life seems okay to me. And so they have that dynamic where it seems like Jeremiah is kind of the nut for saying this over and over again. So keep that in mind as we work our way through it. We might think, it's, it's interesting, we, we might think of Noah, now if you've ever heard the story of Noah where his neighbors made fun of him while he was building the ark, that's not in the Bible. I, I, you know, I, I saw that somewhere and I was like, really? Because I kind of remember that being in the Bible. And I went back and read Genesis and it's not there. So anyway, somehow that's become one of our famous uh, Christian myths in the West. Now, it's likely that it happened. I mean, I think of what it must have been like for Noah to have built this ark that was a sign both of God's salvation for Noah, but also the judgment that was to come and what the neighbors must have thought when a drop of rain had not even you know fallen yet. And this was the same dynamic that Jeremiah was in. He's proclaiming this message of judgment, and yet no judgment is yet seen. The other thing to keep in mind is the dynamic between the call to repentance and the pronouncement of judgment. Why, you know, that, that can seem confusing to us. I mean, we hear Jeremiah announce in verse 19, I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. And then we hear God say in verse 28, I have purposed, I will not relent, nor, uh, or I have not relented, nor will I turn back. This, you know, definitive statement. 
We even see in, in, in verse 10 this struggle that Jeremiah has where he says, Ah, oh, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. How do we make sense of what seems like conflicting messages from the prophet? Well, again, keep in mind it took place over a long period of time, 40 plus years. The call to repentance was directed at the nation of Judah, but it wasn't directed just to the nation of Judah. Well, we see it's it's a broader, there are broader statements in there, even in this passage, and we've seen this in other, that there's a, a message that's to the nations, there's a testimony. But the important thing to keep in mind is that the call to repentance is to the people. The call to the repentance is to the individual. The call to repentance is for people to turn their hearts to God. Now, it's given as a message to a nation, and certainly the people represent the nation, but there's no heart of a nation. Not reality, we use that term to describe it. But the people are called to repent. And it's the same thing in our own day. We are called to turn to God. We are called to trust in Him. Not simply a nation being called. So the call to repentance is to the people. And the reason this is important to keep in mind is that God always preserves a remnant. This is the story of redemption. Now God could redeem however He sees fit in terms of telling the story. But as we look back over Scripture and over history, we see that God always preserves a people for Himself. He gives the promise that His church will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That His church will continue. His church will go on. And so this promise is that there will always be people that God preserves, people that respond, people that will obey. And we see this in Jeremiah. If we peek ahead to Jeremiah 23, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Notice that the remnant here experience the judgment. They go into exile. They're not spared from the human, the temporal circumstances that are a part of the judgment. And yet God says, I will preserve them. I will bring them back. This is important for us to remember in our own day as we think of what's happening in our nation and our world. Here's the point to keep in mind as we work our way through Jeremiah. The call to repentance is always personal. It is very easy for us to say, so-and-so should do that, or look at how bad those people all are over there, or we as a nation should be doing this or that. What are you doing? What am I doing? How am I responding? How am I turning to God in faith and repentance? It is always personal. In other words, like my mama used to say, you're not accountable for so-and-so. There were four of us within five years of each other. There was a lot of that. She repeated that quite a bit because we always wanted to point the finger and blame each other. And mom would always say the same thing. You're not accountable for so-and-so. And there are times where we need to hear that same message. To quit thinking about what other people are doing, we have enough to deal with in our own hearts. As the Lord peels back the layers of our own hearts, there's plenty for us to deal with right here. The other reason to keep in mind that this call to repentance is woven throughout the message, even with the announcement of judgment, is that God is merciful. God is merciful, and He desires His people to turn back. He knew, and He had informed Jeremiah that Judah would not, and therefore the judgment was to come. So the judgment of message, the message of judgment rather, is a certain message, and yet both messages are rightly pronounced and true together. God's judgment is coming. Repent and turn to God. 
And because of this, we see Jeremiah compelled in verse 19, I cannot keep silent. He has a job to do. Even though he's the one who will look crazy, he's the one who uh, everybody will, and, and we'll see this, he'll, they'll make fun of him. They're going to give him a hard time. And yet he cannot keep silent. So beginning in verse 5, in this passage throughout the next three chapters, we see a number of voices represented. We hear the Lord's voice, we hear Jeremiah's voice, and we hear the people's voice. And so sometimes we kind of have to look and discern who is speaking. But in the beginning, it is the Lord who is speaking and saying to Jeremiah to announce that the judgment is coming. He's, he's instructed to go to Jerusalem to make this announcement. And he said to do this with the trumpet, to sound the trumpet. Now, the trumpet that's mentioned here is the shofar, and this is the, the, the ram's horn. You may have seen one. Uh, if you've ever heard one, you probably don't want to hear one again. They're not very musical. They don't sound very nice, but they are loud. They are effective, and that is the purpose. They, uh, they are loud because they are used for a number of things, but especially for warning. And in a case of a warning, you want everyone to hear it. They're instructed to seek the fortified cities. So in this ancient time, not all towns and villages had walls to protect them. But there were cities staged throughout the land that had fortified walls. And so the people were instructed to seek safety there. Additionally, a flag is raised to give a visual signal as well. So they see and hear the announcement. And so the picture that we might think of in our own day is that of a we always talk about hurricanes here, but tornadoes or hurricanes, uh, you know, the, the sirens go off, right? If you've ever been in, in, a, in a tornado uh, uh, place that's, that's, that's uh, where tornadoes happen often, uh, you know, the, the sirens go off. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to seek shelter. You're supposed to, to, to run to the fortified city, so to speak. And this is what the, the picture that's given for us here. But by the time we get to verse 7, we see that the fortified cities aren't going to save them because one is coming like a lion to bring disaster, to make your land a waste, it says. And with this, they're called to mourn, to dress in sackcloth. This is the customary dress to announce mourning. They are to lament, this is verse 8, lament and wail for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. This is a prophetic view of what it will be like when Babylon invades. The people who thought their status, and we've already accounted for all the ways that the people were trusting in their own situation or their own works. They thought their status as the chosen people or the fact that they had the Jewish religion, they had the temple, that was going to save them. God wouldn't allow this to happen since we have these things. They even turned to the Egyptians for, for safety and other powers to come in and deliver them. And of course, we know the syncretism with the pagan religion and their idolatry. But there was coming a time when they would realize that Jeremiah's message was indeed true because the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back. And along with them, we see the leaders portrayed in verse 9 as realizing this as their courage fails. They had misled the people. And so they're going to realize one day when their eyes tell them the truth as this invading force comes, out, comes in and they will be appalled and astounded. You get the picture here. They're going to be utterly decimated and ashamed. And then we come to verse 10, and this verse really stands out by itself because it doesn't seem to fit. It's a discourse between Jeremiah and the Lord, and it is a statement that may seem troubling to us. Now, so far, the, Jeremiah has pretty much sided with the Lord, but we're only in chapter 4. There's more to come. And this arguing or wrestling with the Lord is going to happen again, where Jeremiah says what he thinks. And if you notice... Um, 
God's able to handle it. You know, this, this God is almighty. He's able to handle it. Jeremiah says what he thinks. And we see how, uh, not in this specific case, how the Lord responds. Uh, Jeremiah does have some things to wrestle through. Now, he says that the people have been utterly deceived by the Lord. Is Jeremiah calling the Lord a deceiver? I think that that is uh, beyond a stretch. I think Jeremiah knew better. Uh, we think of passages like Numbers twenty three nineteen: God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. I think Jeremiah is communicating something different. Now, commentators have come up with different ways to explain this, and a number of them are plausible, maybe even more than one at the same time. Let me share some of these with you. One is Jeremiah is referring to the false prophets, that they were coming in saying, peace, peace, and God was allowing this. And so here you have Jeremiah kind of like, Lord, can you shut these guys up? Because you've given me this message, and they're over here, and they're a lot louder than I am. So there's this tension that's going on. Second, he is speaking here of a perception of peace that the people have had for decades, when in reality, doom is coming. And so this gets back to what they put their trust in, the fact that they're the chosen people. That you know, Would God really allow this judgment to fall upon us? And as we saw last week, they should have learned their lesson from the northern tribe of Israel, right? Because God did bring judgment against them by the Assyrians. They should have learned from them. Another one, John McKay suggests that Jeremiah is kind of siding with the populace here. He's taking up their case so as to relate to them in an effort for them to hear his message. And then John Calvin, uh, his, his position on this is that it's just ironic, that it's meant to mock, uh, mock the prophets. I think that there's probably some combination of these uh, involved in what Jeremiah is trying to explain. He is not accusing God of being dishonest, but rather he is wrestling with the tension of the position that he is in. This experience might be summed up in this way. Uh, Jeremiah feels like this, Lord, you've been telling me to tell the people this message for a long time now, but you haven't done anything. I keep saying the same message over and over and you haven't done anything. I know you're going to do it, but these false prophets, which you've allowed to spread their lies, seem to be winning the information war. Show up. Show yourself. Show yourself true and powerful because the circumstances make you look deceptive. Now, can we not relate to this in our own day? I mean, here we are as a people calling on people our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors to turn to God and to trust Him and to be saved from their sins. And yet, what do the people, how do they respond? What does the world around us say? What do I need to be saved from? I'm not that bad. You know, life is pretty good. I'm doing just fine. That tension that we feel. And we're like, you know, Lord, we want to see Him save people. At the same time, you know, Lord, are you ever going to show up in judgment? Are you ever going to show up here and show yourself true? This is what Jeremiah is dealing with. And indeed, the day was coming when Yahweh would come by the force of Babylon and bring judgment on the people. This becomes true, or, or clear rather, in verse 11 as we see the force described as this wind, this hot wind. It's called a Sirocco that comes in. Now, they were familiar with these storms. This, this storm known as the Sirocco comes up from the Saharan Desert and moves northward uh, over North Africa, over the Mediterranean, and into Europe. And for the car guys here, you might remember in the 70s and 80s, the Volkswagen Sirocco 
Uh, this was the Italian word uh, for the same, a version of the same word, hot wind. Um, now, when we were in Cyprus, we experienced a few of these Sirocco storms, and they were they were kind of um, you know uh, weird. Uh, they you know the, the sky changed. There was a different look in the air because of all the dust. Uh, the colors changed in the sky as well. It was harder to breathe, and there were days where we were told to stay inside. I think there were days where the kids had to stay home from school because of the air quality, and so it was. It made life a little more difficult, but it, at most was an inconvenience for us. But if you think about the people in this day, Jeremiah's day, and what life was like for them, they didn't have houses with windows, uh, sealed windows like we do. They didn't have air purifiers and air conditioners. They didn't have masks that they could wear or grocery stores that they could go to in air conditioning and shop for their food. And so when this kind of wind blew in, it made their hard lives even harder. And it's spoken of in particular for their ability to get food. They, they fix their food every day. And so they would winnow their grain to make their food. And this winnowing process relied on the wind as they would toss the grain in the air. The wind was to blow the chaff away so that the kernel would fall. But this wind, when this wind was in town, when this storm came through, it just blew everything away. And that is the picture of this invading force. It's just going to come in and decimate their entire land. The next picture is another storm, but this one is the tornado or the whirlwind. His chariots like the whirlwind. We've all probably experienced it um, when you when you have a storm that's coming up, but there are some storms that are a little more ominous than others. You know, the the kind that have not just the dark gray colors, but they get that green hue in them, often tornadic or, or, or troublesome. And and you realize if you've ever found yourself in a situation where one's come upon you quickly that you feel really helpless really fast. I remember sailing with a buddy of mine when I was in the military, and I realized very quickly he did not know what he was doing, but it was too late. We were already out on the water. And then he decided to go from the harbor into the open water, and things got much, much worse. It's one of two times in my life that I honestly thought I was going to die. And then a storm came up, and, and, and it seemed so far away. But it reached us so quickly. I couldn't believe how quickly the storm came upon us, and I felt so helpless. And obviously I didn't die, but uh, I felt like I was going to. And this is the picture that's given here. It's a storm that's coming, and it's going to be so fast, it's going to overtake you. It's going to get you. The storm moves, comes from the north, moves through the land, across Dan to Mount Ephraim. And then in verse 18, God says this to them, Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. In other words, there's no one else to blame. Judah has brought this upon themselves. Not only have they sinned, but they've refused the correction that God has given. They've refused to return to the Lord. And so for them, it is going to be a cup of bitterness that they are required to drink. And that bitterness comes to a clearer picture in Jeremiah's physical reaction in verse 19. He physically experiences pain. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. He feels this inwardly, physiologically having symptoms because of this great weight that is upon him. And he is compelled to speak. I cannot keep silent, he says. The one who questions God and says, show up and do something, is in the moment of judgment so overcome by this need to speak. The whole land is going to be laid waste. And the reason is given in verse 22, For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children, they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, 
but how to do good they know not. Sounds like the Old Testament wisdom literature, doesn't it? Like Ecclesiastes or like uh, uh, Proverbs, and where it's, it speaks using these, these terms that are made to drive the point home. This is how Judah is spoken of. Jesus spoke the same way over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, where he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. This is the the judgment of God that is being announced. But God is doing so in a way that expresses how heartbroken He is to see His children wonder, like a parent who sees their kid going for multiple times toward the, 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 the stupid act and wanting to say to them, not again, the foolishness, not again. But like a loving parent, He knows that correction is necessary to bring the sheep back. And so in verse 23 to 28, we get a picture again of the judgment that is coming. Here the word picture is that of creation. But rather than the order of creation, it is the order of uncreation. It is a tearing down rather than a building up. Four times Jeremiah says, I looked and behold. If you were with us in our study of Revelation recently, you know that was a common phrase of John's, wasn't it? Look, behold. It was an indication to point to what he sees. What does he see? Earth without form and void, like before creation. Heavens without light. Mountains and hills quaking. No people, no animals, no fruit. It was a barren desert. The picture is the undoing of creation. I think this is the most startling picture that we've seen so far of the judgment that is to come. And since the people at this time still have not listened, they still have not mourned their sins, it is said in verse 28 that the earth and creation will mourn. Now, in Scripture, we see this when, uh, you know, we see language that's used to describe creation, like the trees of the hills shall clap their hands and so forth. But Jesus says very specifically, uh, during the triumphal entry, when the Pharisees rebuked his followers for saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Pharisees said, rebuke, teacher, rebuke them. And he said, hey, if they didn't cry out in praise, the very rocks would do it. Creation would cry out in praise. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation groans because of the fallenness, the sin that has entered the world. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. John Calvin comments, The prophet rebukes people with their insensitivity. For when God appeared as judge from heaven, they were not touched with any fear. That is, though people remain stupid, yet both heaven and earth shall feel how dreadful God's judgment will be. Here we see the people, in a sense, judged by creation. Because they did not mourn, because they did not wail and lament their own sin, the earth and the heavens were going to do that. Now, the final verses of the chapter show this really even sadder picture of the people running for their very lives. They're hiding in the rocks in verses 29 to 31. Judah is pictured even trying to adorn herself as to to woo her attackers. I mean, can you imagine how pathetic that is, that here are people coming to destroy you and you try some seductive act? But this is actually not some strange thing. Do you remember the story of Jezebel? Jezebel, when Jehu came 
to deal with her, tried the very same thing with him. And of course, no amount of self-improvement helped because she met her own demise. Judah is going to act just like Jezebel. And they would not be able to improve themselves enough either. This one who is made beautiful by ornaments of gold and painting her eyes with makeup will soon appear, and she's described in two ways, a woman suffering in agony like that of childbirth, and then a woman who is mourning the death of her children. Probably two of the most incredibly painful experiences in human, in inhuman experience uh, for uh, childbirth and for uh, losing a child. And here they are described together. Verse 31, Woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. I came across this by a, a reformer whose name I did not know, Conrad Pelican. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Uh, but he writes this, Whatever a woman suffers when giving birth to her children or in the brutal perishing of her children, this is said to be endured in Jerusalem among her citizens and children. For they had not returned to the Lord and were always ungrateful for his benefits. So what does this all say to us today? Well, what it says is the call to return is to us as people. It is to us individually. Yes, it can be to a nation, no matter where we live, in any nation, a nation can be called to follow, to seek, to turn to God. We can pray and labor to see our own nation uh, return or turn to the Lord. But what I fear is that a lot of people spend time talking about the nation turning to the Lord and don't give very much time and effort in their own hearts. We are called personally to turn to God. Even if no one else, like Mama used to say, you're not accountable for so-and-so, even if no one else obeys, even if no one else hearkens the voice of the Lord, you and I can. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to God than the fat of rams being offered. For Samuel 15.22, he wants our hearts. He wants us personally. God desires you to turn to him today, to trust him, to love him, to walk with him, and to obey him. And when individuals respond, there is corporate benefit. This happens in families. This happens in communities and in nations. But we aren't to get the cart before the horse. We are called first to turn to God. We have to start with us. I don't know what God has in store for our nation. I'm not a prophet. I can't tell you what's coming. I can tell you there is further evidence, it seems, every day of a nation that turns its heart from God. I can't tell you of any impending judgment that's coming, but I can tell you that when God turns us over to our sins, we reap the consequences of those sins. And so I think I can say with a fair amount of confidence that if things don't change, they will get worse. I don't think that's shocking to anybody here. Of course. That's exactly what will happen. But that does not mean you and I are hopeless. This world is not our home. This is not where our citizenship is. This is not where we're to find our identity. We are not hopeless even though we may live in a land that hates God. If we look back to verse 27, we hear God say to Judah, The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. I will not make a full end. There's the promise of the remnant. The promise that he will preserve a people for himself. A grander story is being told in Judah's day. And the same story of redemption is being unfolded in our own day. That God would send a promised redeemer 
one who would die in our place to save us from our faithlessness. And Jesus did come. He laid down His life. So the call is to turn to Him and to return to Him daily in faith and repentance, no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what happens in our nation or in our community, we who are His are promised to be brought safely into His heavenly kingdom, delivered from every form of evil. This doesn't mean that we won't witness or even be affected by God's turning people over to their sins. We see this happened to Judah. The remnant had to be brought back. They experienced the exile. We may as well. And yet nothing can separate us from our God. We are His, body and soul, and we belong wholly to Him. Let me close with this that is familiar to many of you and dear to many of your hearts. I hope it will become dear to all of your hearts a little bit more today. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Let's pray.